as I go on more and more and build these environments, there's a conversation happening about my fixation mm-hmm. with being in this comfort zone and this kind of insular yeah. space oh. that's full of objects and being comfortable and kind of right. sinking in. Welcome to Magic Praxis, a podcast in which artists talk to artists in their studios. In this episode, we visit the studio of Brooklyn-based multimedia artist Liz Collins. I'm Kate Hawes, and this is Clarity Haynes. Liz Collins is an artist who draws from the materials, processes, and techniques of fiber and textile media. Employing a range of materials, she incorporates vivid palettes and dynamic patterning to create work that varies in scale, from the object-based to the immersive and architectural and straddles the divides between the functional, the decorative, and the expressive. Her background is in textiles and fashion. We visited Liz in her Sunset Park studio, and she discussed many topics, including why we need to transcend the age-old binary of craft versus art, how ideas of use and participation figure in her work, her love of LGBT books and queer art community, and the transformative experience of seeing art in collectors' homes. Did you have an interest in fashion when you were a kid? Like, did you have a real sort of fashion sense? I did. I was really into my own personal style Mm -hmm. as a child, and I was really picky about clothes. My mom would get clothes for me, and I remember being given, like, a fuchsia turtleneck shirt and rejecting it really emphatically, like, no turtlenecks ever. (laughs) And just being extremely selective about my clothes and kind of invested in my look. Even though my look wasn't fancy or anything, it was more just like style and um, fun combinations of things like a dance skin bodysuit and pants. (laughs) I mean, it was the 70s, right? But um, yeah, and then as a like preteen and teen, I was really into fashion and Being a fashion designer wasn't the first thing that I wanted to do, but it surfaced as one of the many things I was interested in in the art and design realm. I learned to make clothes from my mom when I was pretty young. My grandmother used to, actually both of my grandmothers were clothing people. Um, My my father's mom was really into clothing and she made clothing. She had great style. She used to knit. Like, apparently, she used to knit in the movie theater, like, you know, in the early or 20s, like, at the turn of whenever movies were starting to hit the screen. She wow. would, like, knit in the dark. Wow. Um, I know. <laughs> I guess I inherited some of that obsessive, like, late-night crafting kind of things. But, um, and my mom's mother, who actually died when my mom was 14, um, had a dress shop, I think. And, oh, wow. Yeah, so they, it's kind of in my blood. Yeah. stuff. I really felt like I had to decide, like to choose between being an artist and a designer and like the different paths and lifestyles that were attached to those things. And I tried the kind of design path and, and, and working like a conventional job. I had mm-hmm. a job at a textile company in the garment district, like at 41st and Broadway in New York, right out of college, I got a job at a company that made woven novelty fabrics for the fashion industry. And they were produced at mills in New England. 
That sounds like a cool job, though. It does sound cool, and it was cool in different ways, but on the other hand, it's like, you know, it's industry job where you go to work nine to five, you go into the most busy part of New York City at the time when everybody else is doing that, and as a person who's right. thinking, like, I want to be an artist, and, you know, has right. these ideas about, like, freedom and, and right. you know, counterculture and... Like, I mean, I was never anarchist identified and I was more of a new wave person than punk, but just that idea of complete freedom, artistic freedom, um, being one's own boss. I've always been like an entrepreneur and like able to handle that idea of like instigating my own kind of world and trying to, (laughs) you know, monetize it so that I could survive and do it. Like I was doing that when I was young, you know, like even as a... I don't know, a teenager, like, let me make stuff and sell it, you know? Right, right. So then the idea of, but also the freedom of, like, personal expression and, and watching people in New York in the early 90s, like, be artists, you know? I had all these friends who, like, I had people, friends in the East Village who had this gallery, and, you know, there was just a lot going on in the East Village then, and So I felt a real sense of conflict about that. And like, for me, the 90s was all about soul searching. Like, who am I? What do I want to be? Not fun stuff. (laughs) I don't like that. That that level of questioning that felt so dire and necessary to answer. You know, it, it wasn't until I like, kind of understood that I didn't have to answer those things, that things started to ease up. So you, did you finally decide, you know what, I don't really have to choose, I can sort of make my own path in a, with a combination of, of all these influences? Or Yeah, I mean, it didn't, like, making peace with that came later, you know, after kind of moving around in all different directions and kind of working in a lot of different ways. I think until I left my fashion business, you know, like put that on a kind of permanent hiatus and solidified my place in my academic job and started doing more art projects, you know, that kind of shift into like, oh, okay, so if I'm good at all these things and interested in all these things, maybe there is a way that I can do some of them, but... It's taken a longer, you know, another series of years to be able to integrate those things in a way that actually makes sense to to not just me, but to other people. Like my design thinking can be part of my art work and my art process and how it's read is um, based on the context in which it's presented. Right, right. I mean, I'm always looking at artists or designers or both who are, doing things like Roy McMakin. I know who he is. Right? Like, you know his work? Mm-mm. He's a furniture designer, and but an, an artist and an architect. And, you know, all these things. Donald Judd. I mean, these are right. people who work in art and design yeah. very fluidly. And their product or functional kind of objects that are for use show up in their artwork all the time. Right, like Roy McMakin's work oh, is yeah. really interesting that way. Yeah. He has a full-on, like, furniture business, right? But he also has this really robust art yeah. practice. And they 
dovetail into each other. Totally, they're all related. So he's and there's some, a lot of people like that. A lot. What, what I'm interested in is like, here is an object. Like, how does the object hold a different meaning? Is it the context that it's put in? Whether like mm, it's Roy McMacken is putting it in a Chelsea gallery versus a commissioned piece in someone's home well, as furniture. Like, is it? Just about the placement, of, like, no. do you know what I mean? The context is no. like some people say it's the artist's intention. It's like, right. some people, yeah, everyone says something different. I know. I mean, I think about like um, Lucy Dodd's chairs. Have you all seen those? I actually don't know her. She's an artist. She's a young artist who shows at David Lewis and makes these incredible, huge paintings. And they're, they've got a kind of witchy vibe. She uses a lot of interesting natural materials and they're very ethereal and big abstract sometimes um, like kind of loose geometry in terms of the shapes of the canvas and um, they're monumental and very kind of spiritual and mm. um, alongside that she does these woven chairs that I definitely mm. feel a you know kindred spirit affinity about and and I've never heard anyone talk about her chairs as any kind of design object, and I've never seen them like during design month at any kind, you know, right. they're, they're consistently contextualized with her paintings mm -hmm. as installations, yeah. as her artwork. Interesting. You know, you can look back over history, and there are all these different points where there's been really interesting artists, designer yeah. crossovers. For yeah. myself, I would say that. What it boils down to at the end of the day for me, in terms of what an object is, is everything can be read as an art object if it's in a certain context, but then when you're talking about use, like for example in Cave of Secrets, that the, in the Trigger Show, my installation there, that installation and also Energy Field at the Tang Museum, both of those spaces were designed to be used. Right. They weren't designed to, for people to walk in and look at stuff and walk out. Mm -hmm. You know, like in a gallery, you walk in, you look at the objects, you get your experience, you leave. We see more and more now, like Jesse Reeves, for example, in the Whitney Biennial, those, yeah. those pieces of furniture, yeah. do you sit on them or not? If you don't know that you can sit on them, then you don't. But and that you was could. in the room with Carrie Moyer's paintings, right? Yeah, there were Those several. Were there were several wow. pieces of furniture. Like there was a huge kind of play pit, like big square that mm. you could sit on, and it was meant to be that kind of yeah. thing where you get to sit on it and look at the art. And in Cave of Secrets, there were several pieces of furniture, and they were all there to be sat on. And many, many people went through there and didn't think that you could sit on these great chairs that were conjoined, you know, that, um, but they were there to be used. Right. It's tricky with stuff like this because in a, in a museum or a gallery, there's tension around those objects of use and people get confused about what's usable and what's right. just for looking. Mm -hmm. um, I mean... I'm interested in that tension, but I also get frustrated sometimes because I'm like, oh, darn, well, those chairs were there for you right. and you just walked by them and right. you yeah. enjoyed looking at them, but you didn't think you could use them. Yeah. You know, as a person who has a lot of problem-solving skills in kind of the design thinking realm, I'm using that part of my brain to say, like, how can I make a space 
be user friendly, right? Or function in the way that it needs to, based on the needs of whoever's commissioning it or, you know, or what I want mm -hmm. it to be. Um, so I think with rug, like a rug, it's obvious that it's going to go on the floor. And as a person who's designing that piece, I'm still being an artist and thinking about the pattern and how that, right. what it looks like. But I do have to work with this rug company and the technical people there and address things about use, mm -hmm. like traffic and right, right, right. You know? It seems like then what you're saying is like there's no, they're not mutually exclusive categories. At never. All. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like shouldn't art, say never, like, but for like me, a they're functional, not. <laughs> yeah, like art and function. Are yeah. Not. I mean, I think. Or art and. Design, whatever, yeah. like you want Design, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you look at Andrea Zattel as a really right. incredible example of someone yeah. who has been in this beautiful kind of liminal space yeah. between art and design for decades. You know, from her her dresses, was the New Museum there? Is it Chelsea Museum? Her or that she had a big show in Chelsea somewhere in a space that is no longer. I just she, remember those amazing, like little, like trailer, like yeah. cubicle yeah. things with like, A to Z West. The, like, yeah, yeah, like the folding out. Oh, yeah, would sort of like pop out, and oh my god. Yeah, I mean, so her her world is really epic, and you know, it like her and Fritz Haig, you know, some of these artists who have really gone to the wall with their life, or Morgan Pewitt and Mark Dion, you know, making their world, their living right. um, place, yeah. and that's really right. fascinating to me too. And also, I mean, that kind of I don't do that, but that relates to something I'm really interested in for my work. Is which sometimes I, I still feel like is forming like the thoughts about it and how to talk about it. Something you know about how people live with art and live or, or context of objects in people's personal environments. Like, you know, in a collector's home, when you have you all ever been to any like serious art collector's homes? Mm -hmm. It's a pretty amazing thing to see. Do you see more of a melding of use and sort of contemplation or comfort, mm -hmm. you know, in a domestic space and taste? Like I went to Betha Woody's house once and, you know, she has a curator, but she, it's also her taste. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't know the details of how she collects, but I do know that, you know, a lot of collectors buy what they love yeah. and then live with it to see so much of it. Like together, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. it's a very, very different experience than being in a museum or a gallery, yeah. and just to be, and and in New York apartments where they're not that big. Right. I mean, you know, she has a big apartment relative to New York apartments, but still, I've never seen so much art in that amount of square footage. Wow. Like so many things. Not every inch of space was covered, but a lot of it was yeah. full yeah. of art in this way that I will never forget. And things like like sitting in a chair, relaxing, talking to someone with a plate of food on my lap, with a Nancy Grossman leather head, like right next to mine on a pedestal. Like, wow. I just, I'm fascinated by that. Mm. As I go on more and more and build these environments, 
there's a conversation happening about that and my fixation mm-hmm. with being in this comfort zone and this kind of insular yeah. space oh. that's full of objects and being comfortable and kind of right. sinking in. Right, and like, f- physically comfortable. Like I even notice yeah. how comfortable I am in your studio right now because you have several pillows and I'm leaning back <laughs> on them and there's some kind of, I'm on a very, very comfortable piece of furniture. Yeah, It's like some kind of ottoman. And that's interesting because when you're comfortable, you experience things differently. You do. We'll return to our conversation with Liz Collins in a moment. You're listening to Magic Praxis, a podcast in which artists talk to artists in their studios. Thank you for listening and thanks for your support. And now back to our studio visit. Like I'm looking in here and I'm like, everything has like a Liz Collins look to it. <laughs> like the bookshelf is painted red well, and yellow stripes. Because it's a, a container for my past installations. Where else am I going to put it? <laughs> but it's also what I think like it relates to what we're talking about, that you're collecting objects. Yeah, I mean, it's just I, I want... I mean, we all do that. Like, you want what you want. You know, you want to be around the things. You choose things based on what, based what, on what looks like. good and works. And, I mean, really, though, in, in this situation, like, this book cart was from my installation at the Tang. Mm. You know, it served an important function. It's a nice book cart. It's great. And it's from, it's from it reminds a, me of a, a school library. library. Well, that, yeah. was, that was the point because in that installation... It was a collection of books, of of publications that were made by people I knew or idolized or, you know, friends, lovers, associates, you know. So I did a call and asked all those people to contribute to this library. And this was a kind of, you know, curation slash design moment and social practice-y maybe. in that particular space, which was a lounge kind of um, resting space in the Tang Museum, and that museum is on a college campus and a very literary-oriented campus at that, at Skidmore. Um, I, in in creating that space and being asked to, you know, the simple thing of can you take this room and turn it into a great art installation that also functions as a lounge, I thought on it and was like, well, when I was in college, I was always looking for cool places to just rest and kind of zone out and take a nap. Like we used to take naps in the RISD library and it was this wonderful, weird thing of just sitting there with a magazine in a comfortable chair and falling asleep for a while. And so I kind of wanted some aspect of that and started and also was thinking about like the digital, you know, everyone's so plugged in now to their phones and laptops and, you know, as a kind of teacher person, like wanting the young people to always look at books. And so I was like, I'm going to put a fucking library in there, (laughs) you know, and also do that thing like cast of characters does, which is showcase my web of people. Yeah. And for people who don't know, Cast of Characters is a show that's up right now in Manhattan, and it's in the bookstore. Which is called the Bureau for General Services Queer Division. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. And you created this amazing wallpaper 
so that this salon style installation feels chaotic, wonderful, <laughs> celebratory, engaging, just you've really transformed that space. Thank you. And there are books in it, and it's still a bookstore, but it's really transformed. I'm really happy with that project, and I just got a report from Greg, one of the owners, about sales. This is an interesting oh, wow. thing because, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, the main reason I did that installation there is because I love that bookstore mm. and I want it to survive yeah. because it's the only queer bookstore Pretty in the city awesome. wow. and I really care about it because it's a real cultural um, point for us yeah. and a nurturing point for queer people or questioning people, you know, books, mm -hmm. like queer books. Yeah. Every yeah. time I go in there, I want everything and I just feel yeah. like so inspired. Just everywhere I look, there's an amazing book I want to look at and yeah. buy. And, you know, if we don't buy stuff at places like that, they're, they go away, yeah. right? And so I'm not the lazy, you know, I know we all need to get books on Amazon for convenience, but if I want to read the book, Cynthia Carr's David Warnerovich book, I'm not going to order it on Amazon. I'm going to get on the subway and I'm going to go buy it at the bureau, nice. right? So it was a real love letter to that place. And so I'm saying all that to say that Greg told me yesterday that their sales are three times. Oh my God. This summer, they're three times what they have been in the past. Wow. In the book in the summer. Aww. Yeah, because wow. people are coming in to see the show. And then buying stuff. Yes, great. because many people don't know about that bookstore. I've never been there. I've been to the center, but I've never been there. Exactly. I mean, it's upstairs. Unless you know about it, you don't know about it. Like a sandwich board doesn't do that much for people unless they're looking for it mm -hmm. or you have some time to kill. I mean, I, several of the artists in the show who are of our generation and older who came up going to the ACT UP meetings in the center were like, I haven't been in here since those meetings. I, wow. you know, Because they went out through this whole renovation and there was this whole thing about like the center becoming corporatized mm. and... You know, it's a different kind of space, not the same space. And now there's like the, you know, remnants of the old center and the yeah, key pairing yeah, yeah, bathroom. Yeah. And there's some really important yeah, artists, wow. like frescoes wow. in spaces on the ground floor. There's a Kenny Scharf piece. That's really cool. I'm um, sorry. You I'm know, like when I first babbling. saw your work yeah. in, at the Leslie Lohman Museum in the Queer Threads show. Oh, yeah. And you had a large blanket-like tarp-like, it was an enormous gay flag. Mm -hmm. um, the rainbow flag. The rainbow flag, yep. which was sort of draped down the wall and creating a pile of fabric on the floor. Mm -hmm. And you created that as part of your Knitting Nation project, um, which is also all about community, in which you had an army of knitters to create. You had many phases of it, but one of the phases was when you made this big rainbow flag. Yep. Um, so it seems like your work has so much been about community and activism and often queer identity. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and actually, I, we read up on it recently, that that particular project, and saw that you had added colors that aren't normally The still colors there. that went out, yeah. The colors that were originally there included a hot pink and... Or, yeah, and pink, pink and turquoise. And turquoise. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That's interesting, because it has to do with kind of the corporatization of 
the flag and you know the community. So it became like essential to look at the rainbow flag from its origin, um, and its origin was. For, as a symbol of gay pride was 78 with Gilbert Baker and it originally had eight colors and they all stood for something. And, you know, pink represented sex and turquoise represented art. Okay, and then there were all the other colors, um, like yellow was sun. But I wanted people to see that this flag at one point had a much deeper meaning. And I also, not only that, it wasn't more all like cheerleading for the flag. It was also, it was like looking at it and looking at how it used to be a very kind of heartfelt symbol. And then also to um, kind of question it and ask people about their feelings. So alongside that object, making, live making of that object through knitting machines and hand stitching on site over the course of a day was um, this oration. That project was really about a cacophony, like creating a visual and oral you know, sound cacophony. Because the knitting machines make noise and I also wanted there to be like voice noise, um, not just any kind of voice, but like words that had meaning that was related to the, the, what you were seeing and hearing in the um, machines. So I did this online poll, international poll, kind of reaching out to all these different places with the question, how do you feel about the rainbow flag as a symbol of gay pride and why? So I got back all of these really interesting replies from people saying that it, it was a real symbol of hope and safety for them, mm-hmm. to um, people being bitter about gay people claiming the rainbow. It's not really fair. It would be. It's like people claiming the ocean as their own symbol, like <laughs> selfish. <laughs> Really, yeah, they some, take our rain, the rainbow. Yeah, nobody owns there's some, the rainbow. There were some really incredible replies, and some people feeling like, you know, saying this flag does not represent me as a person of color living in a poor part of the city and seeing this rainbow flag in these yuppie coffee stores, and mm-hmm. you know, just a, a huge range of reactions and feedback and. So the oration that was happening during the making of this piece was different people from the queer community in Rhode Island reading those replies. And that piece was actually a real turning point for me as an artist because leading up to that piece, I didn't, I wasn't thinking of the object I was making. It was more about the the live labor experience and the, like, as long as you have documentation, the work existed, you know? But then with that rainbow flag, piece, I realized that I made this pile of fabric and that could be a sculpture unto itself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that was a real moment for me being like, oh, I think I'm making some sculpture here. Yeah. And if I move it around in different ways, like liquid, 
And somebody mentioned to me Linda Bangless, like this reminds me of oh, Linda. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God. And I started right. looking at all those sculptures and I was like, you're right. Mm -hmm. Like the whole idea of fabric is liquid, mm -hmm. which oh, is really- Oh, that's exactly what I thought of when I saw it. Yeah. Actually, it was cascading. Yeah, yeah. And I use that word a lot. Like yeah. in this stuff, there's like, it's a lot of cascading yeah. and falling and liquid and gravity. And yeah. Oh, this reminds me, I have a question. I'm so curious. What is your connection to the Chevron? Okay, that's a good one. Um, I see the Chevron always in, in, on highways and on roads and on the back of trucks. It's a symbol, it's like a warning symbol. It's an attention symbol. It's a look at me, but watch out and stay back. It, it, it's a geometry and color story, usually. It's like geometry and color combined mm. to communicate a message that I think has a lot of impact. And it also is like, mm, you know, an instinctual affinity for shapes and colors that you just are drawn yeah. to, yeah. right? Like, yeah. why yeah. do I like chevrons? It's something about balance and symmetry and movement and sharpness and something about mountain. Like, I, mountains mm -hmm. come up a lot for me. Something about height and ascension mm -hmm. and power, I think. Uh-huh. That, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because it yeah. seems very powerful. It's very assertive. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's like it, it's like the pow symbol mm -hmm. for from cartoons, but also, which I use also. Yeah, oh, that's like right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like the piece. I mean, I'm always the explosions are a big thing that I started using a lot when my life kind of started blowing up. <laughs> unintentionally, yeah. unintentionally, okay. <laughs> it just started coming out. You know, it's like it just started coming. Yeah. Um, but the circles too. You know, the oh, yeah. concentric yeah. circles are an important, have always been an important thing to me for decades. Mm. It's like the target shape. It is, yeah. Yeah. It is. yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I could kind of say that, like that thing that people say about rainbow, you know, that person was saying like, why did gay people claim rainbows? That's not fair. I could say, why did people who shoot things claim the target? Right. You know, like it's not only a target, it's like this, like circles that fit into each other in this way that start, makes them vibrate. Right. So it right. can function as a target, but when I use them, I'm never thinking about targets. Right. I'm thinking about like a visual, like creating an experience where when I'm making the work, I'm hypnotized. It's almost and, like, it's like op art. Yeah, I mean, op art has always been really important to yeah, me. Yeah. Like I've always loved it. When things start it. to move, loved like colors it. next to yeah. each other. Yeah. Yes. Start it's, to vibrate. It's manipulative. It, I'm mm -hmm. really going for that. Like I want people to be transfixed. Mm -hmm. like, like with my clothes, I used to want people to feel transformed. You know, they put on a like sweater that was it. soft yeah. or soft and sexy and made their body feel a certain way. So there was something visceral that was happening to that person when they put on the garment. Sort of somatic or yeah. in the body. Somatic's a good word. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like the senses. It is, yeah, that's, ex thank you. Versus like, you know, Intellect. some art is more, yeah. Yeah. Making, yeah. Yeah, and I actually like it when people use their intellect to interpret my work because I don't always do that. <laughs> <laughs> 
So then it really excites me to hear people with very sharp intellect and, you know, a very kind of left brain yeah. approach or, or, or like theory, yeah. look at the work and also historically and read yeah. it. This episode of Magic Praxis was mixed by John Bender, who also does our music. Sign up for future episodes on iTunes or at magicpraxis.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.